0: Ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a lecture to the um, Test Pilots group of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And um, Duncan has prevailed upon me as the President to um, sit in the um, seat of office to at least introduce the lecturer and try to um, put some air of respectability on the proceedings and uh, having looked at this gigantic audience which I certainly haven't seen in my t- short time as president for the last 11 months, 3 weeks and 2 days um, I'm bound to say I'm very impressed however, uh, in spite of the immaculate timing of all lunar expositions and um, landings we are slightly late and um, I think I should make this matter right as quickly as I can I'll introduce the lecturer because this is my job Um, I ought to add before I even say anything that as an ordinary citizen and probably like at least half of the audience I get my uh, views and news of uh, the Apollo program from watching TV which is excellent and um, to me until I was lumbered into this job and I'm sure our lecturer will feel that this is no disrespect uh, Major Warden was merely a name to me of one of the characters who had participated in this expedition. However, being um, armed with a certain amount of gin and being uh, instructed that i better read out and make a proper introduction of our lecturer, the uh, important thing to recognise is that um, Major Warden in the first place was the, uh, and most of you know this of course, the uh, command pilot, uh, the pilot the command module on Apollo 14. But um, however I get back to my script that um, he graduated from the United States Military Academy in June 1955 and after being commissioned in the Air Force received flight training at Moore Air Base in Texas Laredo Air Force Base, Texas and Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida. Prior to his arrival at the at the Manned Airspace Center he served as an instructor at the Aerospace Research Pilot School from which he graduated in September 1965. This intrigues me enormously because I I note the date. It was September 1965 and as I recall the first time we ever heard a bleak from uh, Sputnik was uh, in the autumn of 1967. Uh, However, presumably aerospace was prophetically named and it meant exactly what it said. But the important thing to me as an old-fashioned aircraft bloke was that he is also a graduate of the Empire Test Pilot School in Farnborough, England, completing his training there in February 1965. And I can only conclude that this must be some reason why the test pilots group might ask him to address you on his experiences in this um, Apollo mission. And that's about all that I personally, as the president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, can contribute to this matter. I'm now going to hand you over to uh, Duncan Simpson, who is the chairman of your group, to add to this matter and um, improve your knowledge of the lecturer before he really starts to work on
1: Thank you, sir. first thing I've got to say is that the reason we're starting late tonight is because Al Warden is still a test pilot and he's been messing around with airpads today and that's why we were late. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say any more about Al Warden. We've been looking forward to this lecture for a very long time um it's taken a bit of organizing and we've got him here so let him carry on with it al the floor is yours and we'll answer questions afterwards
2: first off in uh keeping with the solemnity of the occasion uh in a serious vein i should like to say that i'm a colonel (laughs) and that I flew on Apollo 15. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here. As a matter of fact, you really don't know how much. It's like coming home. It's been a long time since I've been back. Uh, Of course, uh, there are a few, I think, in the audience who remember the old days of 1964 when we Tested airplanes like they should be tested with handheld force gauges and rulers and
0: that sort of thing.
2: But, uh, you know, it's gone the way of everything. We've gotten very uh, sophisticated and modern, but uh, I noticed some of the things are still the same. In fact, uh, one evening at Boston Downs last night uh, proved that to me. Uh, The night was just like I remember our nights back in 1964, except for the egg throwing over the roof. (laughs) I think, uh, what I want to do, uh, is just talk informally about some things I hope will be of interest to everyone. I don't have any, uh, any formal, uh, lecture prepared. In fact, my notes consist of what you see right here, the listing of the slides. I'd like to <clears throat> talk from these notes, uh, give you some of the hopefully pilot-oriented side of the program. And about halfway through, I have a movie of our particular flight, which maybe you haven't seen. It's a 28-minute movie, and it tells the story of Apollo 15 probably better than I could. After that, then uh, we'll talk about some of the future programs coming up and some of the things that uh, I, as part of the United States program, uh, will be looking forward to. Then the first slide, please. This is a this is a slide of the. Of my fateful event, uh, along about 9.54 in the morning on July 26th of last summer. Leading up to this launch, and in fact, this is the, this is the first really good picture I think we've had of a launch with a wide angle lens. You can see all the flame in the fire. Uh, leading up to that launch, we got up about 4.30 in the morning, 4 4.00 o'clock to 4.30, uh, had breakfast, did the usual things you do in the morning, uh, talked to the boss, got the last minute weather briefing, which seemed like kind of a strange thing to me at the time. But but we did And it it, it really turned out to be a rather serious thing It was a weather briefing on the recovery areas In case we uh, couldn't make the flight And we had the last check by the doctors We went down and had the sensors put on Uh, We carried uh, sensors for EKG, respiration, blood pressure And a few other things that they monitored in flight After that we put on pressure suits And pre-briefed for three hours Part of that three hours was spent in getting out to the pad Which is about five, six months and to do that, we get in a small van with uh picture windows around it and, and uh, take a last look at everything uh, on our way out. <laughs> Actually, I thought, really, they'd have been better off if they had a van that didn't have any windows in it at all. We climbed aboard about 7 o'clock in the morning, <clears throat> about two and a half hours before launch. And for the next two and a half hours, we went through final systems checks, Uh, there are a lot of things that can't be checked until the very last minute because it involves um, blowing diaphragms for instance in uh, RCS systems and uh, the last minute uh, uh, topping of the liquid oxygen in in two of the stages and uh, liquid oxygen on board uh, setting up the fuel cells for power there are a lot of, of these kind of functions that have to occur in that last two and a half hours they have to go rather quickly Uh, we have a very detailed uh, complicated checklist and down to about an hour before flight the checklist usually and in our case it did proceeds very smoothly Uh, at about an hour before flight then everything gets quiet they pull the swing arm away or they pull the white room away from from the uh, spacecraft itself uh, and we're we're on our own from that point on that's a very quiet time and in fact two of us fell asleep uh... we were we, I guess we were keyed up to the point, uh, when we first got up that morning, we were keyed up to the point where uh, we were, you know, felt, I wouldn't say outwardly nervous, but there's a certain amount of tension going to the moon. And uh, that tension had kind of built up in us, it had in me anyway, until we got aboard the spacecraft. And once we got aboard, uh, and you go about the normal routine, and I'm sure, you know, we've all gone through this flying airplanes too, Um, when you go about the normal routine of getting the switches set and doing the cockpit checks and getting the engine started and all that kind of thing uh, as soon as you get moving why things kind of slow down and you're you're sort of back in the in in the in that nice old rut that you're in when when you're flying all the time so about an hour before flight all this activity came to a to a halt there wasn't anything to do anymore Uh, we were very cold they they, uh, chilled down the air in the suits and uh, with that cold air and with no activity and with nobody talking on the radio uh, jim Irwin and i both went to sleep we were asleep about 10 minutes i guess in fact the doctors confirmed that on the telemetry and that's the only thing wrong with uh, having a doctor so intimately involved in the program
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: they, they they i i think they know a good deal about more about me than i do and uh, they you know they can almost tell you what you're thinking by just watching your ekg next slide i think what we'll do is uh, get into uh just just a little of a the, of, the, of the basics in the program and i'll give you some of my own opinions about some of these things uh, in the first place um given the right background anybody can go to the moon all you need is a little money and uh, we we happen to s- establish the national goal as you know 11 years ago now to go to the moon and by the end of the decade. Well, the money in relation to the to the rest of the budget uh, that we've had in the United States in the last 10 years, the money spent on the space program is pretty small. It's only about one and a half percent of the national budget. So we've done, uh, I think, uh, a, a very good, integrated, uh, successful program uh, on a very low budget compared to uh, some of the other uh, programs going in the country today. What we wanted to do was um, find out basic information about the Moon, uh, find out about its origin. It's a uh, well-known fact that uh, without an atmosphere, the surface of the Moon is undisturbed relatively since the time of its inception. The Earth, on the other hand, has gone a constant uh, regeneration in the upper crust, due to erosion, due to earthquakes, due to uh, continental drift, due to all of the mechanics of uh, an active body that's heated internally such as the earth is and has an atmosphere the moon on the other hand is uh, is uh, has no atmosphere Uh, there are some uh, sources of heat internal to the moon but they're not uh, of the same magnitude as on the earth and the crust of the moon has solidified and remained fairly constant uh, we feel for at least the last four to four and a half billion years the moon's age uh, it looks now like is coming out somewhere around five billion years which puts the age of the earth also in about five billion years and the age of the solar system in about five billion years um, so what we wanted to do was find out as much about the moon as we could and from the rocks that we pick up on the surface of the moon extrapolate that back to the earth to find out what the earth was like and what processes have uh, created the earth as we know it today and then of course we wanted to develop the techniques obviously to go there so that meant uh, materials manufacturing the, the things you see on the board here uh, probably the most important thing to come out of our program uh, is the management concept that uh, puts the program together and that was a management concept or a management team that involved government and industry working as uh, equals uh, around the meeting table and not uh, being dictated to by any, anyone outside that particular meeting all the all of the solutions to the program particularly after the fire in 1967 were panel decisions there were committee decisions uh, and everyone was uh, truly oriented toward getting the program uh, so to speak off the ground and they really did it's a it's a management concept that's still going now and it's being applied at the present time to uh, some of the future programs which we'll get into later next slide this is uh, just a, probably the only technical slide I'll show uh, and it just shows the trajectories involved in, in going going out there and back uh, of course starting from the very beginning is uh, is launch and earth parking orbit earth parking orbit is about one and a half revolutions about two an hour about uh, two hours and 20 minutes in uh, in earth orbit during that time, uh, I did navigational sightings. Uh, we checked out all of the systems on board and, and made sure that everything was working, uh, both with what we could check out on board and what the ground could check out with telemetry. Uh, we ensured that all of the mandatory systems were available to us uh, prior to committing to the translunar insertion burn. Translunar insertion uh, is a maneuver that adds about 10,300 feet per second to the velocity of the spacecraft. And it actually targets for some uh, area uh, way out ahead of the moon but of course because of the mechanics of the European system uh, it comes to meet us uh, before we get there we uh, right after the transmitter insertion uh, the the s4b goes to an inertial hole we separate from it with a command and service module go out about 100 feet turn around and come back in and dock and that's really uh, the first time we get to fly the vehicle The docking, of course, is to the lunar module, which is still strapped into the into the uh, shroud of the S-4B. And as soon as we get docked, we connect an umbilical that allows us to uh, explosively detach the limb from the S-4B. That was the first time any of us, uh, that was maneuver that I performed, and that was the first time any of us had our hands on the the spacecraft to fly it. And we had great decisions, uh, great difficulty in deciding how we're going to do this, whether to do it manually or whether to do it uh, through GNN control by GNN control, uh, we can let the computer automatically turn us around to the proper docking attitude, and all we have to do is translate back and forth uh, to get a ways away so that we make sure that we're clear of it when we turn around and have to translate back into the docking. Uh, I elected to do it with uh, with the uh, SCS systems, the building control system, which is the manual mode, and um, I, I believe in doing things the simple way, and uh, I've much preferred to fly the thing myself than to let some little computer fly. Although it turns out that uh, if the computer is working properly, it's a much more efficient way of uh, flying a diesel. After uh, the transposition and docking, uh, we go. We went into a mode known as PTC, that's uh, passive thermal control, and that uh, merely involves aligning the axis, the x-axis of the spacecraft, uh, normal to the Uh, plane containing the Earth and moon, plane of the ecliptic, uh, and then just rotating very slowly so that the sun uh, would heat up the surface of the spacecraft uh, gradually around the spacecraft. We wouldn't get excessive heating on one side. Uh, We never had a problem with uh, maintaining an inertial attitude. Uh, The spacecraft distributes the heat quite well, uh, but there is uh, quite a difference in the temperature. And just just to stay on the safe side, uh, we go into passive thermal control. While we're in that mode of operation, we do a series of uh, navigational star sightings. And I'll go into the, to the optic system here in, in a little bit, maybe. Uh, but we maintain our own inertial reference on board uh, by star sightings. And we can actually calculate our own state vectors on board, uh, which um, are merely um, six numbers that represent uh, position, velocity, and time. With respect to an inertial frame of reference, uh, we can do all of that on board. Well, we go on. We go on out. The next, the next maneuver, of course, is uh, is lunar orbit insertion. That's a retrograde maneuver. We arrive at the moon on the backside uh, at about uh, 8,800 feet per second. Our translunar insertion uh, velocity is somewhere around 37,000 feet per second. It's about 26,000 miles an hour. We hit the backside of the moon uh, at 60 miles at 8,800 feet per second. We have to take about uh, 3,200 feet per second off to stay in lunar orbit. The velocity at that altitude, lunar orbit, is about 5,500 feet per second. So we have to uh, come off with about 3,000 feet per second, which we do um, at the just just before reaching the 180-degree point in the moon. The first uh, to Again, playing it on the safe side, the the lunar orbit insertion maneuver is um, is conservative. Uh, we don't go into a 60-mile circular orbit at that point. We go into a 60-mile by 170-mile orbit, uh, the 60 miles being on the backside of the moon. And we can target for that very accurately since we've had tracking all the way out. We know exactly where we're going to go into lunar orbit. However, that burn is done on the backside of the moon, out of contact with the Earth. And because of that... Uh, all of the parameters of the burn have to be monitored on board Uh, because they don't trust us uh, they they have us go into a 60 by 170 at first uh, which gives us an extra 10 seconds burn pad we come around the front side and give them uh, the results of the burn and uh, on the next rev or the second revolution after that then we go directly to the deorbit burn uh deorbit maneuver and that places us in a 60 nautical mile by eight nautical mile where the eight miles is over the landing site in other words we we do part of the lunar modules work for them by going into a lower orbit just over the landing site the rest of the 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 rest of the flight once we get the the lunar module on the surface uh he detaches uh, goes down to that eight mile point and then he does power descent from that point down Uh, the command module goes back into a 60 nautical mile circular orbit and uh, stays in that parking orbit for the Three days that the guys are on the ground. When they get ready to come back off, uh, and with the proper timing they come off, uh, we rendezvous in about two-thirds of a revolution. We used to take uh, two revolutions to rendezvous, uh, but we've refined our techniques, our Mm -hmm. tracking is much better now, and we've got a lot more confidence than we had two years ago. So we go into what we call a direct rendezvous, and all that consists of is the lunar module getting into an orbit which is 15 miles below the command module orbit. And because he's in a lower orbit, he's going a little faster, and he does a catch-up maneuver. When he gets at the right angle or the right trailing distance behind the command module, he adds velocity, and that, uh, of course, changes his orbital parameters so that he actually comes up to the orbital altitude of the command module where we dock. And this maneuver is is a very simple one. As a matter of fact, uh, we've never been forced to, but we feel we could do that complete maneuver uh, manually, if we had to, without any navigation, without any tracking, um, we feel confident enough at this point that we could uh, actually rendezvous uh, just looking out the window. Well, once we've done that, then we fire out a lunar orbit and add that 3,000 feet per second that we took, took uh, that we uh, subtracted before, and, and head back home next slide. Then this, th- these are just a couple of artists' uh, sketches showing uh, relative positions of things. Uh, this is a translunar uh, insertion showing the S-4B with the command module on the front. Next slide. This is the, the transposition and docking maneuver, and you can see starting from the left there where the S-4B goes to an inertial attitude hold. Uh, we separate the command service module, then the pedals come off <coughs> of the S-4B um, Spacecraft limb adapter, uh, exposing the lunar module inside while the command service module is turning around. Uh, then we translate back into the, uh, docking with the lunar module, pull it free, and then you can see that we're, we're in these last two pictures here, in the last two, uh, items on the slide. We're in the PTC attitude. Next slide. And this just shows the, uh, the landing phase. Shows the command service module, lunar module stack going into lunar orbit. Uh, then on the second revolution, of course, it's, it actually occurs on about the 14th. Uh, the lunar module detaches and goes down to these, these are all very simple maneuvers uh, to perform. Um, we have very complete checklists. And... The details of all these things worked out quite well the only the only thing I the only thing I found with uh, with uh, the whole flight the only difficulty I found so to speak was the fact that the, that the clock is absolutely um, like a great big stone rolling down the hill you just no way you can slow it down and uh, you you find that uh, even if you have an hour to go until the next maneuver uh, you're standing there watching the clock because you can't afford to miss the maneuver. So the the clock is the big thing in your mind all the time. You do everything by the clock, and uh, after a while, it you begin to wonder, you know, who's who's driving. Um, you you know, it's like the clock is uh, is constantly telling you what to do. And uh, but that's the way it has to get, has to be because everything is done so precisely. We do all of our Um, all of our maneuvers, our accelerations and our decelerations, uh, we do within a tenth of a foot per second. Uh, We maintain attitude control during that maneuver uh, to less than about a quarter of a degree. And uh, our inertial reference is maintained to within a hundredth of a degree. So you can see all these things are very precise, and we have a computer to help us out with it. But that same computer runs by the time, and uh, that's the same thing that we run by. And I, it seems, after a while, that's all you do is, is watch the call. Next slide. And this is this is uh, merely the launch phase uh, from uh, of the LEM, uh, which you're probably all familiar with the rendezvous maneuver, and uh, then the trans-Earth insertion Of the course, we get rid of the limb and impact it on the surface unless somebody uses, and uh, it stays in lunar orbit. Uh, as you probably know, we have one there now. Next slide. And of course, this is uh, just a um, a picture of, of uh, Earth entry. Uh, 15 minutes out from uh, from atmospheric entry, uh, we do the yaw maneuver, 45 degrees out, and uh, dump the uh, service module, and then turn around backwards and use the heat shield to come back in. Uh, this, again, is a can be a, a, a guided maneuver. We have a GNET program, which uh, guidance and navigation program, uh, which covers all of the entry phase, and it's, uh, uh, it's very good. I think our missed distances are of the order of one mile, something like that, uh, from the, from the uh, uh, predicted point. Next slide. This is a lunar module, and um, we'll Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about these. Uh, the lunar module, of course, is is uh, actually two vehicles. There's a descent stage and an ascent stage bolted on top. The descent stage has a throttleable engine. Uh, has uh, This this picture is not correct. It's an old one, but it has a it has an extension on the on the nozzle now to uh, uh, give it a little bit more thrust. Uh, we have a new series. In fact, our flight was the first uh, flight to fly the new series of spacecraft. Um, we flew a J series where before we'd had the H the J series involved uh, added weight landed on the moon uh, due to things like the rover which weighs about 500 pounds to get that 500 pounds on the moon it cost about another 1200 pounds in the in the lunar module itself Uh, to get the 1200 pounds in the lunar module that means you got to have more fuel in the command module and it all goes back downhill until the point where to get that extra 500 pounds on the lunar surface we had to carry we had to inject into lunar or we had to inject into uh, into the uh, trans lunar trajectory an extra 7,000 pounds of weight just to get that 500 pounds down on top of the descent stage and you can you can see the the, the ladder and the, the landing gear and the, the forward hatch the forward hatch of course is the one that they use for ingress and egress so you can see the oxidizer tanks the S band antennas radar antenna um, the the lunar module uses radar for rendezvous processing um, for the uh, equations rendezvous equations and the command module uses optical tracking Uh, that was that was my job uh, back in the command module to keep uh, the optics trained on the lunar module and let the computer know where he was all the time optically well that all that gives you is line of sight Uh, we also have uh, uh, distance measuring equipment which inputs distance uh, in through a separate channel to the computer so he gets not only line of sight, but distance to the lunar module. With the radar, they can get both, but we found that the radar is not as accurate as optics. So uh, we can actually get a better solution in the command module than than the lunar module can. Uh, The ascent stage, of course, has the RCS uh, quads, uh, one in each corner, and uh, the the, uh, the ascent fuel tanks. uh, The upper docking tunnel is right on top. That means that uh, when we dock, the guys in the lunar module are looking up overhead at the command module because of that 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 rotates your axis that, that rotates your uh, your pilot axis so uh, uh, yaw becomes roll and uh, things get a little bit cross coupled so um, we've decided that the command module would make all of the dockings if he possibly could and that's the way we handle most of it next slide. This is uh, a command module that I flew uh, during a flight last summer, and this shows the major difference between this command module and the command modules in the past. You can see we've got an open bay, and in that bay we carried all the scientific instruments uh, with which I conducted some experiments during lunar orbit. They're basically in three classes. Uh, in, the, in, in the rear of the bay towards the big SPS engine bell uh, are some geochemical experiments. They're gamma ray, alpha ray, or alpha particle x-ray, and uh, mass spectrometers. Uh, we use those to analyze the chemical composition of the surface of the moon uh, to uh, uh, record uh, the x-ray radon emissions from uh, the lunar surface. Uh, radon is, uh, is given off as, re- as a result of volcanism inside the moon, or inside anybody, and if we can measure that, the, the radon... Uh, flux, then we get a measure of the of the volcanic activity on the Moon. And uh, it's rather significant that we uh, didn't measure any during the um, Then there's the gamma ray experiment, which is, again, uh, designed to give us a map of the chemical elements uh, at, that are present on the surface of the Moon. Next to that, um, is a, is a small subsatellite which we ejected just prior to coming home. This subsatellite measures the magnetic field about the moon. It also measures uh, the cosmic particle uh, field about the moon. Uh, we want to know what happens to the moon when it uh, crosses the Earth's magnetotail uh, from plasma from the sun, that kind of thing. Uh, and also because it's a completely unpowered vehicle, and with the tracking that we have available on the subsatellite, we can determine. Very accurately the gravitational model of the moon which is which is quite different from uh, what we thought it was a year ago the two big things in the in in the sim bay are the cameras one was a mapping camera uh, that takes a 70 millimeter photograph every 20 seconds of the surface of the moon and in the middle of that it takes a it takes a laser altimeter shot and records that altitude to within plus minus two meters on the film or also prints the time and the date and there's a there's another camera that's uh, oriented 90 degrees or 96 degrees to it which takes a picture of the star field for attitude control so that they can take all of this put it back together and uh, draw an accurate map of the moon uh, from one terminator to the other uh, 180 degrees of the moon's surface and uh, with it with, with an accuracy of about 100 meters across that entire distance which is an order of magnitude better than we have been able to do before to fill in the details, there's a panoramic bar camera. This is an 8-inch camera, and uh, it's an old uh, Air Force reconnaissance-type uh, camera. It's a large one. It weighs 350 pounds. and carries um, over a mile of 5-inch film. Um, it's uh, like 6,700 feet of film. We took some pictures with that camera um, that got down to resolutions of about 1 meter. I think in the movie there's a there's a shot of that uh of the some of the results of that which are really quite spectacular when you look at the surface of the moon from from 100 kilometers uh, with a resolution of about one meter you're you're really looking pretty close next slide this shows the service module and i don't want to go into a great amount of detail on some of the systems but i think it's important that uh that we as uh, we're, we're in a new ballgame here from, from the way things used, used to be, I think, in, in flight tests. Uh, we have, in our office, a great deal to do with the actual design of the systems. Uh, we get very involved in the, in the safety, in the single-point failures, uh, in, the, in the redundancy aspects of the systems. Uh, if we're unhappy with something and uh, can prove that it uh, could cause an unsafe situation, then and, and we've had very little trouble. Uh, getting it corrected in there. I should <clears throat> I should back that up by saying that hasn't always been true And I'll you know, and I'll just recite for you the probably the the, the most uh, uh, Tragic example of that uh, When the Apollo spacecraft was first uh, on the design boards back in 57 and 58 59 um, The central the the large hatch in the side was a two-piece hatch the gentleman, who was a program manager at the time, um, was basically an unmanned satellite man, and he was very concerned about maintaining pressure inside the spacecraft, so he built a two-piece hatch, one which, which uh, closed from the inside, sealed from the inside, and an outer one which sealed from the outside. The outer one was, uh, was really uh, heat protection on entry, and the inner one was the pressure seal. And his thinking, reasoning was that uh, with pressure inside, The the seal would be maintained. He didn't think we could seal a hatch uh, by just having a close closable hatch. Well, the result of that, you know, not the result of that, but uh, certainly a very uh, major contributing factor to the to the fire we had in '67 was the fact they couldn't get the hatch open. The pressure inside went to some 33 psi uh, in like on the order of about 10 seconds. And, of course, at 33 PSI, that's a 1,000-square-inch that's a hatch. Uh, there was no hope of them breaking the seal in the hatch. And uh, the, the result of that was that the, the pressure vessel ruptured. The thing that got them was uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, we went back, and that's, that's when we uh, really started looking at systems very critically. In fact, we stopped the whole program, and, and uh, there were a number of us that, um, for the next year and a half, practically lived at, uh, at North America and in Los Angeles. Uh, going through the design of the systems uh, to try and find these kinds of um, weak points, and uh, I think the, that effort since then has been has been pretty successful. But the hatch thing, for instance, we went back and uh, had North American design a single-piece hatch which opened outward, uh, and it turned out that they could, sure enough, design one with a very very good seal. Our leak rates were like it, <laughs> of the order of of. Uh, cubic centimeters per day or something uh, very very low uh, we found that we that we maintain pressure without putting any any more oxygen on board we could maintain pressure for for days up there the only thing we had to do is keep purging the oxygen so that hatch was a very good hatch it could be done it, it did push the state-of-the-art a little bit I think at the time But uh, that was another thing that we, that we really needed to do so these systems uh, have been looked over by all of our guys and uh, and I think um, analysis and evaluation of of uh, of flying systems is a very important thing Um, the pilot the the pilot can't afford to uh to to uh, overlook these things anymore the sps engine uh, at the bottom uh, of course is uh, fed through tanks in the middle Um, we we carry all of the oxygen and hydrogen tanks back there of course we use oxygen and hydrogen to um, produce electrical power through the fuel cells, and the byproduct of that is pure water, which we drink. Uh, in fact, it uh, generates a little bit more water than we can we could comfortably drink during the day, so we, about every third day, had to dump some water overboard. And it has all the radiators, uh, storage tanks, um, and, of course, on, on our particular spacecraft, it had the scientific instrument bay back there. A high-gain antenna. Is, uh, on the on the aft flange of the service module and that's a steerable antenna with uh, several modes of operation next slide this is the part that we get rid of just prior to entry this is a command module inside the command module um, are of course the reaction control system for for entry which is basically a roll control um, we've got batteries here instead of fuel cells the fuel cells are in the service module so we run the the last uh, 15 minutes of flight on nothing but the batteries. Uh, the, the guidance and navigation is here. The uh, environmental control system is contained in the in the command module. Um, the communication system is contained in here. Communications we use, of course, are up in the 3,000 megahertz range. Uh, S band communications uh, onboard. Uh, Transmitter is a variable from five to ten to twenty watts, and we ran most of our flight on ten watts. And with that, we could get back um, high bit rate information on the telemetry. In addition to that, we carried two VHF radios for communications in Earth orbit and with Lunar Module when we're at uh, in, in lunar orbit. Uh, the VHF wasn't isn't good enough to use Earth moon distances because of the frequencies involved the antennas here would have to be on earth would have to be too, too big i guess the only other system in here is the optics system i might just talk about that for just a second the optics uh our guidance and navigation system uh, is uh, basically referenced to an optical subsystem the optics uh contains a telescope and a sextant sextant is, uh, is a true sextant um, it's a 28-power it's a telescope uh, that has a very accurate reticle pattern, and uh, we use that telescope to do all of our uh, optical sightings and to do our navigation. Uh, the, nav- the, the inertial reference is uh, aligned and maintained by taking a sighting on two stars. What happens when you do that is that uh, the computer records the shaft and trunnion of the sextant, at the same time, that it records the uh, the angles of the uh, gyro, uh, the stable element or the inertial measuring unit, as we call it, on board. And after you've taken a second star sighting, then it uh, it takes those, all those numbers and computes uh, the angular difference between the two stars. And if that comes out with a with a uh, certain number, uh, the number we use is um, uh, five, five thousandths of a degree. If if your if your sighting was accurate enough to get those numbers down to less than five thousandths of a degree, then you have to tell the computer to proceed, and it calculates the difference between uh, the the reference platform that it has at present time and the new one it should have, uh, accounting for the for the two new star sightings. And what it'll do is uh, just come up with new gimbal angles, and you tell it to proceed, and it'll It'll uh, torque those gimbal angles out, and we can also realign the platform the same way Uh, in lunar orbit. We can tell the spacecraft that we want to go a certain direction with reference to local horizontal. It's very nice for doing that too. Uh, We can tell it we want to go, say, 2,000 feet per second local horizontal to get us back home, and then we can realign the uh, the inertial measuring unit or the flight director if you want, if you'd like to think about it that way. So that it reads zero 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 at the time we start the start the burn, uh, we can go back to the same program, take two star sightings, and the computer then will calculate the gimbal angles that it'll have to torque the the uh, the, the flight director through to make it read zero 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 on the ball when you when you start the burn. That's a very simple thing to do, and we did that we did that for every burn. Uh, you have to you have to keep track of what your uh, reference your your inertial reference is at the time. We use a different reference uh, for every phase in the flight. For instance, on the way out, PTC, we use a PTC rest mat, which aligns the IMU 90 degrees from its normal axis because we have a gimbal lock problem with 90 degrees yaw. Um, the rest of the flight is all done in plane, uh, but it's based on um, on the inertial reference or the inertial frame surrounding the landing site at landing and the inertial reference surrounding the landing site at liftoff, which is. Of course three days later and, and slightly different inertially so we do realize that new put to that new, to that new uh, reference frame up at the top is the, of course the docking probe and that's just a, uh, a pneumatically operated probe it has uh, three latches uh, right in the in the tip of the probe um, which are like door latches and, and uh, where all three latches have caught um, we get a talkback indicator inside the cockpit that says uh, we've got a capture, and then we blow a nitrogen bottle, and, then, and the, the pressure from that pulls the probe in. When the two docking rings get together, we've got mechanical latches uh, that are spring uh, spring latches uh, that, that trip mechanically as the latches come together, and they cinch the two tunnels down. Uh, it's a it's a very good very good system. We we. We've had uh, very few problems with it. The mechanical system is very good. I mean, uh, if we're talking about docking with the Russians, uh, we're going to go through a completely different kind of docking system. But uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a compromise. We, their, their system is about is, is somewhat like ours. Uh, but they have, um, uh, well, both halves of their docking system are exactly the same, whereas ours, we have a probe on one side and a drogue on the other side. We just run the COVID it's like in-flight refueling. And uh, they have, uh, it's a, it's a uh, universal system. They can, they can go from either side, uh, although it's much more complicated than this. Okay, the next slide. This is just a picture of the panel I'd, I, I thought I'd uh, throw up here. I'm, I'm, I know some of you have seen this um, in the simulators down in Houston and on um, pictures before. But uh, I thought you might be interested in just taking a look at what the at what the uh, the pilot side of the vehicle looks like. This is the flying side uh, the 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 two balls of course are the flight directors uh, the one on the left uh, generally shows the i m u information the inertial reference information and the one on the right we use the um, Show the stability control system uh, gyro information. Those are body mounted gyros and uh, they have uh, rather high drift rates. Uh, the, the spec limit is about 10 degrees per hour. Uh, I think most of them run about maybe one and a half degrees per hour, one to one and a half degrees per hour. Uh, we keep those aligned to the inertial measuring unit uh, prior to every burn so that in case. Something goes wrong with the computer system, then we can switch over to the body-mounted gyro and complete the burn. Everything, everything has a backup system or a redundant system. We can also switch these two around. Just directly below the one on the right-hand side is the uh, what we call disky. That's the display and keyboard, and that's our input uh, to the computer, and it also uh, displays its information back to us on that port. Uh, over on underneath. The, uh, the Flight Director on the left side are the Gimbal Actuator Indicators, and they tell us um, what the Gimbal Actuators are doing um, in the Service Propulsion System engine. And this is, this is the thing that uh, gave Ken the clue that he was having problems with his SPS on Apollo 16. Uh, he was checking out the, uh, the Gimbal Drives on the SPS. This is uh, just a, a pre-burn check. And we step these things through plus two, minus two, and zero uh, inputs, and that, we drive them with the GNN actually to plus two, minus two, and then back to zero. And then they go to trim. Uh, that's just to make sure that, uh, that 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 the loop from the GNN all the way down to the SPS is working uh, the way it should. Well, when he turned when he turned on the secondary system, he found that uh, that that indicator started to oscillate. And he shut them off before the oscillations had uh, neutralized or had stabilized. Uh, he thought they were still divergent, which would have been uh, which would have been a no-go situation. We uh, subsequently had him check those um, gimbals out again, the secondary system. And we found that the oscillations were, were uh, neutrally stable at about plus or minus 0.9 degrees. Uh, that told us that the rate loop feedback in in the servo loop uh, was open. So they, on on the strength of that, based on the fact that they had run this in qual test prior to the flight, uh, some 3,600 seconds, and hadn't had any problem with it on on the qual engine, they elected to go ahead and land and Of course, he didn't have any problem. That's where he got the information from. There are some 700 switches and circuit breakers inside the cockpit, and we don't pretend to know all of them. Uh, in fact, uh, the switches over on the right-hand side, I'd, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to find if I had to in a hurry. Uh, we, that's why we've had to split up the workload, And I guess that's another point for, um, for pilots of the, of the future. Uh, I think um, that as things get more complicated, you get to the point where you have to, you have to split the workload. And uh, you, you can't you just can't cross train in this vehicle. I have about thirteen hundred hours of simulator time, uh, for for this for this particular spacecraft here. And uh, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin who flew with me had uh about the same in the lunar module. Uh, so it's it's really a, a case where you, you 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 can only afford to train in one vehicle and you can't train in both. And in the one vehicle, um I was the only one of the three of us that could do all of the functions that had to be done. And, uh, of course, I flew this vehicle the whole way. So they knew their supporting. They knew the supporting functions in this vehicle. I knew nothing about the limo. I can't tell you anything about the limo. uh But they knew about this vehicle, only what they had to know to, to back me up. Next slide. And this is just the center seat panel, and this is only the panel. This shows none, none of the circuit breakers. are. Any of the switches off the side, but uh, this is this panel here includes uh, the reaction control system switches, um, all of the all of the um, uh, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen uh, system switches the the uh, cryo, cryo system pumps and fans uh, that sort of thing, and uh, the environmental control system that's down there is done in this. Let his bottom rope basically the design concept is that everything runs automatically until it fails then there's an electrical manual backup to that uh, which uh, the pilot on board can control with a switch and if that fails then he drops back to a manual system where he actually starts moving valves and all the valves are around the side around the sides underneath the couches and if it gets to that point then we pull off the panel in and start moving valves around. Uh, in the film, it turned out to be a lot more significant than we thought in flight. Um, we took a lot of pictures of, of the of the band around the moon over which I traveled all the time. But there were so many pictures that uh, it's been difficult for the geologist to get to those pictures to analyze them. And I called out cinder cones in the Littrow area, and that was the first time they'd been observed on the on the surface of the moon because of that observation they looked at those films first and because of what they saw in the films they they selected that as the Apollo 17 landing site uh, which is uh, uh, rather significant I think for for observations from that kind of platform from from an orbiting platform Uh, the other thing is that uh, our physical condition when we came back uh, was was such that uh, we took about four or five days uh, to get back to our pre-flight uh, standard. It turned out that I was actually in, in, in better condition when we got back than, than Dave and Jim, who'd uh, done all the work on the surface. It's always been kind of an old wives' tale in the program that uh, zero gravity is the thing that gets to you. And since they were in one-sixth gravity working for some 70 hours, uh, the feeling was that they'd be come back in better shape than I was. Well, it turned out they weren't. They were, much, they were in much worse shape than I was, and it took them longer to come back. And that led the doctors uh, down the trail of looking at chemical balance in the body, and we find out that there are an awful lot of things we don't really know. Uh, we have a little different idea about what goes on in space than the Russians. They feel that uh, it's a cyclic uh, physiological effect on an 18-day cycle. And if you go on an 18-day flight you're going to come back in very bad shape and in fact they proved that with uh, i forget which soldiers it was now uh, but they came back in 18 days and couldn't walk uh, our flight was 12 days and we came back uh, we, were, we were certainly um, uh, mobile we could certainly walk but our condition was uh, uh, not quite as good as it should be and the flights we had before that uh, which were shorter than the 12 days Uh, they they seem to come back in progressively better shape. So maybe there's something to do with the 18-day cycle. Pile 16 um, came back in very good condition after 11 days, Uh, but they were uh, fed a very high potassium diet. The doctors feel that the potassium balance in the body, it's potassium ion balance in the body that affects the cardiovascular system to such an extent. And so they enriched their diet with potassium. And they also... Uh, insisted that they drink a lot more water than we did in flight. So it's a combination of the two things, maybe the potassium and the water, that uh, brought them back in better shape. Because of those kind of problems, though, we're we're, we're looking forward. As you probably know, Apollo 17 is the last lunar flight we have. After that is the Skylab, and we're looking forward to Skylab uh, because this is going to be, at least the first one, basically a medical flight. Uh, we're sending a doctor along who's a navy flight surgeon who's been on the program now about seven or eight years it's going to be a 28-day flight and one of the big things from that flight is to find out exactly what happens physiologically during that long exposure to zero gravity and to 100 percent oxygen environment we know that certain physiological changes occur because of the oxygen environment uh, we're not sure uh, where the dividing line is between that and the zero gravity uh, skylab as you probably know, is going to be uh, launched in April of 73. The laboratory itself is the third stage of the Saturn V booster, the s 4 b uh, That's a cylinder about 30 feet in diameter and 60 feet long, and it'll be divided into compartments, as you see here. Uh, attached to the front of that will be a telescope mount, and we hope to do some solar uh, observing with that particular telescope mount, and also an airlock um, module between uh, the uh, the ATM Apollo telescope mount in the lab and uh, there's a, a, a docking adapter uh, to which resupply crews will uh, attach themselves when they go up to meet the lab. It'll be powered by solar panels and batteries uh, it runs a little uh, on a little different philosophy than uh, the Apollo program because it's going to be there for a long time. We expect the lab to stay in orbit about two years. We'll visit it for about one year. The first flight will be in the day after the lab laboratory launch in April, uh, the crew will stay for about 28 days and come home. It'll be uh, then powered down for about three months, and the next crew will go visit it for 56 days. And then the third crew will go visit it for a minimum of 56 days, but the flight is open-ended. And so they could be there until some, until some they start running out of consumables. We're, we're not sure just how long that flight's going to be yet. But we expect to get a lot of physiological data uh, out of uh, the, the Skylab program. And that will cover uh, 1973. After that, we're idle for about five years. It looks like at the present time, unless we do the uh, uh, international docking mission, uh, if we do that, that, that that could occur sometime in 1975. We do have the hardware for it, and we're quite sure that, uh, that uh, there's going to be some agreement between the United States and Russia but at this point. Uh, no announcements have been made. Uh, if that does occur, though, that could, that, that would fly probably in 1975. And next slide. Uh, the next thing coming up is uh, the shuttle program, and this is going to be the DC-3 of the, uh, of the space age, we hope. Uh, this is a, a reusable orbiting vehicle. It'll lower the cost of putting a pound of payload in the Earth orbit by a factor of 10. Uh, it costs right now about... Uh, $500 a pound and we expect that to go down about $50 a pound when we get uh, the shuttle operating at uh, at full load. We're going to build it looks right now like we're going to build um, probably five vehicles and uh, out of a 10 year period we expect to get some uh, 750 flights out of it so it's going to be a busy program. Uh, we're looking for this thing to launch maybe once a week uh, with five vehicles we have and the program will be split between East Coast and West Coast. The East Coast will go from Cape Kennedy, and that'll be uh, uh, equatorial launches. And the West Coast launches will go from probably Vandenberg, and it'll be uh, polar orbits. That'll be mostly, you know, military uh, kind of launches. There's been a lot of discussion about what kind of a vehicle to have, and this uh, is the final configuration that's uh, been evolved. Uh, this is uh, basically an orbiter with a very large fuel tank, uh, underslung fuel tank. And strapped on to each side of that fuel tank will be two solid uh, rockets. Uh, they're the 156-inch solids, and they'll they'll drop off uh, at about 40 miles in the in the orbital point into orbit with the large fuel tank that it carries, which will have uh, uh, liquid fuel. And that that of course will be jettisoned once they get into orbit. The orbiter itself then will just have some small plane change capability and uh, deorbit capability. Basically, the orbiter looks very much like the old X-20 that we were uh, trying to build some 15 years ago called the Dinosaur Program, except this is much larger. You can see this thing's 120 feet long. Uh, It's a a fairly good uh, vehicle. uh, I'm not sure uh, what the final weight, the final landing weight of this thing will be, but it'll be somewhere in the order of 200,000 pounds. It'll be a dead stick landing every time, so uh, test pilots are back in the loop again. we have the next slide and these are just some slides of of, uh, what what the shuttle we hope will look like i guess that's the way i see it too (laughs) it's actually traveling from left to right and that's just in orbit in the next slide that's that's what it'll look like at launch this is a very unique thrust vector control problem uh the uh the solid boosters are going to have Non, they're going to have non-swiveling engines and all of the thrust vector control will come out of the uh, three engines on the bottom of the center tank uh, there's uh, quite a quite a, an asymmetric thrust problem with this whole program uh, if uh, one of the solids should go out it's uh, going to be pretty hairy I think unless we get it <laughs> unless we get that very clearly defined early in the program It's just exactly what we're going to do The the horizontal flight test program on the shuttle should start in about 1970s. Well, it's programmed for 76, but I don't see any way we can make that. Uh, Probably 77 or 78. First orbital launch sometime about 1980. Uh, This thing will put in orbit up to 65,000 pounds, depending on uh, the launch inclination. And with a few 65,000-pound modules, we could uh, put together a spacecraft to go almost anywhere so that uh, the first step will be uh, Earth orbiting uh, station, and uh, from there on out, uh, there's a, a good possibility of putting together a large enough vehicle, say, to go to Mars in, in 15, 20 years. But it could be done very economically because you don't have to worry about getting all stuff off the ground at the same time. You can build it in orbit. And we do have a nuclear engine, of course, which can be used, and that can be taken up in one of these two. So the, the possibilities are good. This is a basic building block that we'll be using probably for the next 50 years we get it built and that's uh, very successful I think that's the last slide I have and I'd like to mm-hmm. uh, close down uh, this, this, this part of the show and uh, uh, answer questions if we could
1: I think we can afford to let the um, questions go on a little bit longer. We can probably keep um, Colonel Warden here all night. Um, I'm going to call for a official vote of thanks a little bit later on, but I think um, I may be forgiven for saying straight away that it's a rare privilege for us all to sit in this lecture theatre and hear this sort of history being made, how it was made by somebody who actually took part. Uh, if we could have some questions from the floor and if you very kindly give your names uh, clearly so that it can go on to the tape. Can you give us some
3: idea of the total time you're actually
2: burning the rocket from the the total time that um well, the, the, the total burn time sort of has to be taken in stages. Of course, the launch is about 11 minutes and 44 seconds. That includes, uh, using up the first stage, the second stage, and part of the third stage. The third stage re- is reignited for about 5 minutes and, uh, 5 minutes and 50 seconds on the TLI burn. And then, of course, that stage is expended. Uh, the next large maneuver is lunar orbit insertion. Uh, that's, uh, another 6 minute burn going into lunar orbit uh then it's about uh two minutes and 30 seconds coming back out of lunar orbit of course we we're way down in weight by then we start out our our trans lunar injected weight was 100 and 107 thousand pounds uh, that's with lunar module command module fully loaded uh, our lunar orbit um, weight command module wise alone uh, was down to about 36,000, 37,000 pounds. And the, when we did the, uh, um, the trans earth maneuver to come back home, uh, our weight dropped to about 24,000 pounds. So the times keep compressing as the weight goes down. And, uh, I guess altogether that's about 20 minutes of burn time. Next question.
1: I wonder if you could tell us something of the
3: matching between your simulator results before the program
2: and the actual results during the program. You're asking me how accurate were the simulators? Uh, in the first place, our simulators were fixed base simulators. Uh, there are no motion cues in the simulators except for. Uh, some uh, rather crude simulators we have called dynamic crew procedure trainers, uh, but the, the the basic Apollo simulators are fixed base, uh, and so everything is done with regard to visual cues and sound cues. And I would say that uh, after having flown those simulators for as long as I did, which was about thirteen hundred hours, uh, it was just flying simulator all over again in flight. They're very very good. They're excellent uh the visual cues are are phenomenal i know some of you were over uh, last january you probably had a chance to look at some of them but we use a friend optical system for uh the four windows in the command module and for the optics um, the star field uh associated with that optical system is uh, is is just superb uh we we could train for for every phase of the flight every dynamic phase of the flight in the simulator and Once in flight, it was just doing it all over again. We had, we had minor comments to make. We never had, uh, a serious dynamic complaint against the simulators. We did have some minor complaints such as the attenuation of light through the optics as opposed to what we saw in the simulator. Uh, we had some complaints as to the, as to the noise generated during launch on the simulator as opposed to what we got in flight. And of course, we had three different opinions of what we'd really heard. So, uh, and, and, and they're very, they're, the only comments that I could make about our simulators would be very subjective, and we all had different opinions on them. Uh, I, I think they're, they're absolutely superb. They're the best simulators I've ever trained on. But they are. You know, of course, digital simulators, uh, the whole thing. That's kind of a program where, you, where it's pretty hard to take it to place and go out and shake it out a little bit.
1: Well, after that, tremendous tribute to the simulator people. Next question. Uh, I believe some astronauts were trained test pilots before they came into the program, and some are not. I wonder, it's a fair question to ask you, sir, uh, if you see there is any uh, significant uh, factor in test pilot training before astronaut training, or it doesn't have a good ability.
2: Well, Don, I'll give you a really honest answer to that one. Uh, There's a great controversy going on in our country right now about uh, the, the the pilot astronaut versus the scientist astronaut. Uh, we have about 50 uh, 50 mix right now. We're going to fly our first scientist astronaut on Apollo 17, a geologist, Jack Schmidt. Uh, Jack's been with the program about seven years now, and the first thing we did when he came in the program was send him to flying school. Uh, he's been flying since then, and he's he's a very competent pilot. Uh, he's a he's a he's an outstanding individual. But I don't think, and I, and I and I think most of the people in our program would, would probably back me up on this. I don't think anywhere you can find a group as eager to learn and to do things as you do in a test pilot group. I think by the very nature of the beast that goes to test pilot school, that's the way he is. Uh, we've we've um, since I've been there, I've taken the equivalent of a college course in geology. I think i'm as confident of a geologist as anyone we've got around the center today. and i think uh, uh, in particular dave scott and jim Irwinner. Uh but in addition there were they were test pilots from the very start we uh, we insisted on test pilots being involved in the thing when the program first got started because we didn't know what we we're going to run into now we're getting to a mode of operation that's uh, considered more or less routine but uh, as i we we had some discussion about this prior to this meeting tonight, and uh, I'd like to just relate a, a, a little story of one of the individuals involved in our program to, to show you the difference in philosophy. We had, we had, uh, we, we have never had a problem in flight with any of, the, any of the guys who've been through test pilot school or were test pilots, but we took in one scientist uh, three years ago. We sent him to flying school and he eliminated himself. He was a self-eliminated uh, washout from flying school for fear of flying. And then he had the unmitigated gall to write a book on why you don't need to be a pilot to go into space Uh, we uh uh, we we've never publicly objected to 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 any of that because everyone's entitled to their own opinion however the truth of the matter is that if you can't hack a piper cub uh i find it awfully hard to believe that you that that you could stay locked up in one of these things for 12 days if uh, if uh, if someone has uh, one of the things you train yourself, uh, I, I I think one of the big things you get out of test pilot school and being a test pilot is the fact that you train yourself to observe even even when uh, you don't like the surroundings that you're in. You, you you train yourself to to observe and to think things through and not just go off in each, in every direction. And I think that's one of the things that saved our program time after time after time as a guy. Who were able to think through their problems. Gemini 8 was a perfect example. Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott had a tremendous problem with a pressure that wouldn't quit firing. Uh it was only through a lot of cool thinking and and letting that thing rotate. They actually got rotating 360 degrees per second. Uh one revolution per second. Uh there were some pretty pretty fierce forces acting on those guys inside there. Uh they very th- that that he's he's being trained as a pilot after the fact. He's not he he doesn't have the, the, the mental uh, attitude to begin with, be a pilot or you'd already be one.
1: Well, I think that was a very straight answer in the comment down the There so.
3: <laughs>
1: we are. The next question. you to
3: I'll
2: tell you exactly. Nothing. <laughs> uh we 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 are a civilian operation but basically military organization and um, rank uh, does have some effect on what how we line up on the cruise about all I can say about how crews are selected are that the commander is a guy who has flown before and the, and the other two the, the the second in command and the, and the third in command if you want to term them such <laughs> 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 the other two guys on the crew uh, fallout and rotation. Now, what we did when we first got there was uh, evaluate everyone else in our group, and that listing then uh, was taken by our boss, Steve Slayton, and I think that was a basic guide that he used to select the first few crews of flew. Crew. Um the, the commanders of the flights have uh, mostly been uh, gentlemen like Dave Scott who would flown twice before. He was available for a flight, and it was kind of his rotation turn. And uh, the fact that Jim Irwin and I flew with him uh, just meant that we were kind of on the list somewhere along about that place. I don't think there was any other uh, uh, preconceived ideas or, or I don't think there was any, any other uh, notions about how to match crew. It turns out, and that's a, and that, that, that that's kind of an interesting point, because mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about and, a lot, and, and ask questions about. Uh, why, you know, it always seems that the crews are so compatible. Well, uh, they're not. Crews are not compatible, our crew is not compatible, um, in, a, in a social sense. We're very compatible in a professional sense. We complement each other very well. Uh, what Dave doesn't know, I do, or Jim knows, and, and, and we work very well together as a team, but we don't talk to each other outside the office, and I think that's very important. Uh, it, it, what that says is that you don't really have to be great buddies with a guy you fly with as long as you respect him and, and as long as you know he'll do his job properly. As a matter of fact, during the flight, we didn't talk to each other. I well, I didn't want to talk to those guys anyway, but you know. <laughs> but but that well, they'd gone to that other school anyway, and. and <laughs> but but that's very true. There there is uh, there, outside of the the functions that have to be. Performed on board. Uh, the more you live in your own little world on a flight like that, the better off you are. It's uh, you know it's a long ways away. There's a, it, it is isolation, uh, regardless of how you like to turn it. And um, there's there's a much more secure feeling in just being on your own and knowing that you've got two guys you can rely on. But uh, guys that you don't have to. You know we're not sitting there holding hands and pouring out our hearts to each other. But uh, the, the, this, the, I think each crew is like that. And I think each crew, when they get on a flight, each member on a crew sort of withdraws into himself for the duration of the flight. I think it's inevitable on a, on a trip like that. Next question. I'll come yeah. on back like, to I'll
3: just asked two questions. One is that you mentioned a very last training program. I believe you mentioned something about the hours. How far along this training program? Go before you felt confident to undertake the trip. And secondly, could you enlarge a little more on the uh,
2: medical symptoms of uh, the trapping from JFG? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, in answer, in answer to your first question, uh, our training program kind of goes in three phases. The first phase is um, uh, being selected to a support crew, a support crew uh, does the engineering involved in that particular flight. It also does uh, some flight planning, some trajectory analysis, Uh, a lot of crew equipment work, uh, like checking everything that goes into the crew compartment to see that it fits and that it functions the way it's supposed to, uh, taking care of all of the myriad of details that surround the launch, And that's that's an essential part of the training because it gets the individual involved with the spacecraft, with the switches. He begins to learn the hardware. He begins to look at systems. Uh, he meets and begins to work with all of the people involved in the program from the ground side. The second phase is uh, being uh, selected to a backup crew, and that's where the active training starts. Uh, that active training is, uh, is many-fold training. It's just you, you, you cover everything that uh, you would even remotely be associated with during the flight, all the way from flying simulators to zero-G aircraft to uh, uh, diving in the in, in the neutral buoyancy tank. To geology field trips, uh, to medical field trips, uh, we, we we just cover the range of uh, all of the various aspects of the flight. I would say that every crew uh, arrives at the point where they say, "I'm ready to go" at about the time they finish their backup crew role. Uh, they've they've trained to actually take over on that flight if they have to. They're not quite as well trained as the as the prime crew because the prime crew has been through the backup crew role before. But at that point in based on um, having all of their checklists and the flight plans and the trajectory uh, squared away at that point, the backup crew could fly quite easily, I think, at that time. Um, And I guess that would be the point at which you say, yes, I'm ready to go. Uh, Of course, in the normal sequence of events, then you go back through the cycle once more and take that same amount of training all over again, getting ready for your own flight, which is somewhere in the order of a year to a year and a half away. Uh, so that just doubles the kind of that kind of training. And as a matter of fact, on our flight, it was a, it was it was quite a problem with us because we were well enough trained when Apollo twelve wins that we were getting to be concerned about being overtrained before we flew. And being overtrained is a great danger. Uh, if we we noticed that on on our crew, and we noticed on an Apollo sixteen crew also that uh, the more training they did, uh, the more mistakes they made. They got so familiar with it, and we did the same thing. You get so used to the surroundings, and you get so used to uh, what you're doing that you that you begin to make mistakes that you would never ordinarily make. So it uh, it pays to leave a little bit of the guessing in the game, a little uh, little striving for um, following the checklist and doing everything just right, and uh, that's the penalty for being overtrained. But I'd say at that point, the backup crew. As to the medical problems, um, all I can say about uh, what we saw after flight was um, some readjustment. I used to call it deterioration until the doctors got after me. Um, but there was a readjustment in the cardiovascular system. My my heart rate prone was, uh, was running close to 120 uh, about an hour after recovery. And uh, Jim Irwin, for instance, uh, couldn't even do the exercise response test. Uh, an hour after recovery because his heart rate was so high. He was running a heart rate of somewhere 170, 180. And they decided that, uh, they, well, of course, now that was pedaling on a bicycle. But, <laughs> but, uh, the, the fact is that your, your heart is a very, very adaptable muscle. Uh, it gets very lazy very quick. And in zero gravity where it doesn't have to pump blood against gravity, uh, it, uh, it gets, it just goes soft very quickly. Now, it readjusts quickly, too, when you get back into in a 1G environment. Compounding that problem, apparently on our flight, was the fact that we uh, lost a lot of potassium. We think the loss of potassium was due to a loss of nitrogen in the spacecraft. We launched with an 80-20 mixture of nitrogen, and we purged nitrogen for the first eight hours in flight. However, in the command module, we never get rid of all of it. We always... Uh, have a residual of somewhere around uh, one to two percent nitrogen. In the lunar module, there is no nitrogen to begin with, and uh, they purge uh, at least three times with pure oxygen while they're on the lunar surface. So they have they have a complete lack of nitrogen in the in the lunar module. The doctors feel that the that the nitrogen is a catalytic mechanism for potassium ions in the body, and the potassium ions in the body are the things that control the heart. They control the cardiovascular system. Uh, they're not sure what the what the correlation is between the two, but the fact that um, flights that that um, have not purged uh, the command module of all the nitrogen have not had the problem that other flights have has led them to think that maybe a little bit of a trace of nitrogen in the atmosphere is uh, is rather important to uh, that particular physiological response. Uh, they attribute my better condition uh, after flight to the fact that I was in that 1% or 2% nitrogen atmosphere a lot longer than, uh, than Scott and Irwin, and that I only had two days of, of pure oxygen atmosphere on the way home, uh, so that I had that, that much less uh, p- potassium sloughing in, in, in my physiological makeup. I don't think we really know what the answers are. Uh, John Young claims that uh, potassium doesn't do that. For him it didn't help him a bit and, uh, um, so i don't know that, that that that's one that we're going to have to find out in Skyline. Uh outside of that um, everything else physically with us was uh, was quite normal we lost no calcium and, and we lost no bone calcium we did lose uh, some muscle tissue um we lost about an average of three pounds which was quite good for, the, for a flight out there in fact that was that that was the record i think uh and that's another thing about having, well, uh, three guys that you know, really, uh, you're not really, you're friendly with them, of course, but you don't work that closely with them. Uh, the first day out, Dave Scott started eating, and the second day out, Jim Irwin and I started eating in self-defense because we knew that Dave's gonna eat it all up if we didn't. So, so we, so we ended up eating everything on board. The only thing that was left was some, uh, some, some bits of bacon cube when we got back. And we'd eaten everything else up on board, and we'd taken an extra three day supply.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Feels good, too. <coughs> well, on that note, I think probably we'd better have the last question. up <coughs> from the back of audience. Like the audience. Right in the back. When it occurs on any of the, uh, menu, the modules, how does the system for locating the exact course uh, of the failure, on the floor of when you have the uh, failure of the feedback uh, uh, exactly how good is the system for
2: locating I'd say about half as good as it was last year and, and that's in all seriousness um, the people that originally designed the systems are there, there are very few of them left with us now and uh, the ground controllers and the engineers that work the program now are people who were not there when the initial, uh, design and development was done, so we're in a situation now where the people that designed the thing have moved on, and the people that are now involved with it uh, certainly know the systems, but they don't know all the background data. Uh, that that information on that on that servo mechanism, um, we knew quite quite quickly what the problem was. Uh, just a just a basic understanding of servo mechanisms. Uh, lead you to the conclusion that it had to be in the in the rate feedback. However, we didn't know what the engine what the response of the engine would be to that, and it took us six hours to finally go back and find somebody who has who was who was in the program at the time when they ran the qual test on that to find out that they had run that for some 3,600 seconds, which was uh, you know like a uh, hundred times more than we really needed. and get the word down so that we, so that we knew that the thing was safe to continue and that's our big problem right now uh, the program has been um cut back to the point where we've had to let a lot of the people go that were uh, that started the program that were there when the first when the program first uh, uh started building and these people at right today That are working in the program know that after apollo 17 they're probably going to be out of a job so we have a great morale problem with uh with the people that work particularly at the cape uh the people the engineers that surround the program we have the same problem because most of them are quite new to the to the systems and to the program and this is a great danger that we face in in 17. we had much more trouble with apollo 16 than we had with 15 for instance Uh, we had some problems on the pad prior to launch, which delayed the launch for a month, and it turned out that some of those problems were incorrect servicing. Um, The checklists were followed, but uh, the fellow who read the checklist left out a couple of steps, apparently, and uh, he collapsed one of the RCS tank ladders around the inlet, uh, which... uh, required a change, and there were some other things that happened at the same time which were directly attributable to uh, just ground handling and uh, just procedures, and that was really attributed to the fact that uh, these these were fairly new fellows working. So we, we do have a problem there.
1: Well, I think, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, on these special occasions, we've got to bring it to a close. Um, it also brings to a close our lecture session for this 19... Um, uh, 19- Two. In a moment, I'm just going to ask uh, Good Captain Hall to propose a vote of things. I think it's a friendship that the down to the Empire Test School should do this.
3: Uh, I felt very diffident about sharing this session. Now, of course, I could speak proud, uh, asking questions, answering them, as is my wont. Uh, but the one thing, and particularly the last question, has brought out, of course, as an old-fashioned aircraft bloke who doesn't understand the space lot one little bit. If ever the test pilot was a fundamental part of the t- overall engineering system, uh, it just has been so on this Apollo lot uh, everything one's read in the papers, everything you've seen uh, and it's just been emphasized in the answers to your last question. Apollo 16, Apollo 17, good God, the ordinary test pilot doesn't begin to make it routine on a, on a, on a prototype aircraft, that he's done about 30 sorties. And here we're talking about chaps, geologists or whatever, going out and being uh, uh, getting all the uh, the answers to the question. The plain fact is that from the point of view of the ordinary Joe, we should be talking about Apollo 30 before somebody can go out to the moon and really get some scientific information, with all due respect to the test pilots who turned into amateur geologists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the fact is that the whole thing has been tragically cut short in its prime. I don't know what it's cost the American taxpayer, God bless him, we has gone so far. Um, but um, from the point of view of us, as aircraft engineers, I can only stand and marvel uh, that the way in which um, the chaps that flown these aeroplanes and managed to get over the usual hit-boos and muck-ups that most of us engineers make in designing anything. Uh, and here we are, having successfully got past Apollo 16, and once again got through the usual snags, diagnosed them on the ground, and as you so readily said, The chatbot did it as left! We 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 know this story so well, and normally it's a good laugh, but by golly, the the consequences on the next flight might be more tragic and not quite so funny. That's my personal view as a bloke who has never been concerned with space flight, but has nothing but unbounded admiration, A, for the quality of the design and engineering that went into, the overall Apollo project. Number two, the Chaps who've turned out not to be test pilots, but quick-thinking diagnostic engineers who, needless to say, have a vested interest in making sure they got the right answers before they <laughs> And number three, the overall quality control, even though uh, uh, the what left did it as left, but, uh, and the, the hardware's beginning to be a bit second-hand, but nevertheless, the quality control of this ginormous enterprise uh, has been, to me, something quite staggering. Well, I managed to get my questions in, and my comments mm-hmm. in, uh, and um, I hope that everybody has done that.
2: I'd like to uh, leave a little memento with the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society. It's uh, something that I carried in flight. Um, It's uh, something uh, very special to me, and uh, it's something I'd like to leave with the Royal Aeronautical Society. um, I managed to carry uh, this small British flag with me in the flight, and I thought, along with the picture, uh, which is which is really an Air Force recruiting picture, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nonetheless, it uh it shows all there was on the surface up there on the moon, along with our patch. I'd like to leave with the Rawl Aeronautical Society.
3: Thank you very much.